welcome to Creekside. Uh, we're glad to see everyone here. If you want to come in and uh, find a spot, hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving. Had enough turkey, just enough, not too much. Worshiping with you this morning. I just want to say thanks to our decoration team. Uh, church looks really wonderful and it's very Christmassy and it's exciting to walk in and see the, the trees and the decorations and everything that's here. So just want to extend a special welcome to you if you're worshiping with us online, you're here in person. We're glad that you're uh, worshiping with us this morning. I want to just uh, say, uh, First Sunday in Advent, so uh, we're excited about the, the four Sundays preceding our celebration of Christmas. We do have a Christmas Eve program that we'll have, a Christmas Eve service we'll be having on Christmas Eve at 5.30, so hopefully you can make plans to join us. I have to make sure, I'm not sure we'll be in person, but I'm not sure if we'll be online or not, but uh, we'll, we'll check that out and we'll get back in touch with you. So I'd like you to uh, pray with me, if you would, as we continue to worship through the study of God's Word. Father, um, I just know that in my own mind, Lord, I find my, my thoughts scattered and I find my thoughts uh, easily, I find myself easily distracted by a lot of things and I just pray uh, that you would help us by your grace to focus on you. God, we pray that you would help us to get to know you better and love you more, uh, that your spirit would work in our hearts to teach us, and we ask that you would help us to behold wonderful truths from your law, as the psalmist prayed, and not just that we would gain uh, more information, that we would gain uh, education, we want that, Lord, but we pray that it would be for our transformation, and we ask that you would open our eyes and let us see these truths and let those truths make their way into our hearts and change our lives. We pray for your glory. We pray that your word would have its way as you've promised that it will accomplish that for which you sent it. And we pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before I actually, uh, I have two sermons today. Uh, the, the first sermon is, uh, I want to I ask if you would just open your Bibles to Ephesians uh, chapter 4. I've been thinking and praying and talking to people this past week, and I don't know about you, but I just, I just sense that, and maybe this is just me, but I don't assume it is, maybe it is, just a lot of angst about what is happening in our country and in the world, and just a lot of uncertainty and a lot of confusion and a lot of just people kind of being on edge. Uh, I think people are just kind of like, um, frustrated, and maybe they don't even know they're frustrated, they're disappointed. So I just want to read Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. He says, I therefore, Paul speaking, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness. Now the all should be with 
the gentleness as well as the humility, okay? With all humility and all gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I thought, you know, I just wonder, in, in the body of Christ, in, in our Creekside family, are we listening to Paul? I, therefore, a prisoner. So he, this is his, uh, kind of his resume. Okay, The things I'm about to tell you, uh, I'm in prison for. Okay, So lest you think that you are probably worse off than me and probably shouldn't listen to what I'm about to say, uh, I just want you to know that I'm not just blowing smoke here. I've, I'm experiencing this. And, and then he says, walk worthy of the calling. And I guess that's my heart. I've just been praying this week that, that we would, and I, would walk worthy of the calling. The calling which we don't deserve, that we've been brought into the family of God, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And that we would do so, and he says in this way, with all humility. And with all gentleness. And then he says, with patience and with forbearance, that's long-suffering. <laughs> you know, because in the body of Christ, and then he goes on and, and he concludes this uh, section. He says that we would uh, preserve the, being diligent in verse 3, pre, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit with the bond, in the bond of peace. So I just have a, a, a three points to this little brief introductory sermon, and that is this. Uh, let, let's try, by God's grace, to avoid jumping to conclusions with each other in the body of Christ during these COVID days, during these uh, pandemic times, during this uh, uh, you know, election upheaval, during the you know, change of seasons, during Christmas. It's easy to jump to conclusions. Well, oh, that person's not wearing a mask, or that person is wearing a mask, and that person should be wearing a mask, and that person shouldn't be wearing a mask, and I don't know why that person's not in church, and I don't know where this person's going. We just jump to conclusions about everybody is, is doing something, and we assume we know why. And of course we're right, because it's our assumption. And I'm thinking, humility? Where is the humility in that? Where is the gentleness in that? Where is the patience in that? Where is the being long-suffering in that? And then let's not be, you know, avoid judgmentalism, you know. And we, we jump to the conclusion and then we make the judgment well, that person's living in fear, or that person doesn't love me, or, you know, because that person's living in fear because they're staying at home, or they're uh, not socializing, or that person, or they're, you know, they're afraid to get too close to me, or then we're, we're saying, well, I'm judging them because they, they have extra freedom to not do this. And I'm thinking, you know what, folks, we don't know what's going on in everybody's situation. I don't know what everybody's health conditions are. I don't know what everybody's level of comfort is. I don't know what everybody's employer is telling them to do or not to do in order to make themselves safe so that they cannot put the people they work with in danger. I don't know. So maybe I shouldn't jump to conclusions and be judgmental, and then maybe I shouldn't be jealous of somebody else's liberty or somebody else's uh, lack of liberty. I should just be willing to be patient. 
And we're getting on edge, and so somebody's going to say something stupid, and somebody's going to say something that they wish they hadn't said, and are we going to be willing to suffer long with those people? You know, my kids, they, they do stuff I don't agree with. They're adults now. That's the scary thing about raising kids. They, they get up and they grow up, and, and then they, they do stupid stuff, which means they do stuff I wouldn't do. <laughs> I, I, I say that, you know, because that's, that's the sarcasm. It's, no, they just do stuff, and I wish they wouldn't do it. I still love them. I'd still die for them. I'd still go to the line for them. I would still sacrifice for them. And whatever. They're my kids. We're the body of Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ that should unite us way beyond, you know, whatever political stripe, way beyond whatever social economic class, way beyond whatever, whatever, whatever. You know, whatever your favorite team is. So, just by God's grace, could we uh, just pray through Ephesians 4 a little bit, where uh, in light of who we are in Christ, that's Ephesians 1 through 3, now what should we do as those who are in Christ walk worthy? And so that's my little, uh, you know, that's for free. Now we're going to get to the real meat of what, what, what you we came here for. But would you just join me in praying, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, to preserve the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. Because the enemy, he wants to bring division. Because if he can bring division in the body, we see the unity of the body of Christ, in spite of our diversity, it is what screams at the world that Jesus is real. That's John 17. You can read it, uh, verses 20 through 23. That's what tells the, the world that we are, that Jesus is real, the real deal. So just pray with me if you would on that. Now, uh, I want to get to the fact that, uh, the, that we've heard, and I heard somebody, I think it's my father-in-law, he says, I'm sick and tired of hearing about COVID. You know, I don't want to hear any more about it. You know, and I think there's a lot of people in the world that are that, are that way, but, but COVID is a potentially deadly pathogen, okay? The lethal effects of which scientists for the past several months have been trying to deliver us from, okay, right? The, the deadly effects of it they've been trying to deliver us from. But this morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where Jesus alerts us to a pathogen that is more deadly than COVID. In fact, the, uh, I've got to get this right, the IFR, uh, the infection fatality rate of this pathogen is 100% for those who aren't treated. 100%. As opposed to the 0.5 or 0.1 or 0.2 or whatever percent for, for COVID. You see, Jesus has just defended in Matthew chapter 7, or 11, Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 15, he's, 15, he's just defended the, the grand mission and the gripping message of John the Baptist with regard to who Jesus was. And he's established, Jesus has, prior to this, his own identity as the Messiah. And he concluded that section, and if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them to Matthew 11, because that's where we're going to be. Uh, or your device and get there. But in Matthew 11, verse 15, Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He has given us this statement to share with us the, the, 
tragedy of ignoring what John has said and the urgency of accepting what John has said about who Jesus is and who John is. Jesus is the Messiah. Unfortunately, the people of Jesus' day, just like the people of our day, didn't really get it. And so sadly, the, the people resisted and their unbelief, which is the malady that has the 100% IFR, infection fatality rate, was so prominent that Jesus said, I'm going to analyze it and I'm going to uh, uh, address it so that hopefully, by God's grace, some of you will turn from your unbelief and get treatment you need so that you'll be rescued from an eternity apart from God. And so in Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 16 through verse 24, Jesus condemns two forms of unbelief in an attempt to deliver the doubting from the deadly consequences and to inspire believers to proclaim the truth because the truth we have of Christ who came as a babe in a manger, who lived and died and rose again to pay for our sins is the only cure for what ails humanity. And this is the joyous message we have at Christmas, at Easter, and every day in between. And so we have in Matthew chapter 11 these two forms of unbelief. And I'm going to read the text and then we'll unpack them, beginning with verse 16. Uh, Jesus speaking says, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, sincerity and humility. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Not easy stuff that Jesus is talking about, but first of all, we see that we're in danger. There's two forms of unbelief. The first is when we have impossible expectations, okay? So the danger of impossible expectations is laid out for us in uh, the nature and the consequence of it in verses 16 through 19. And it unfolds in three steps. First, we see that impossible expectations are exposed, and they're exposed through a parable in verses 16 and 17. The parable of uh, God's people being uh, responding to John and Jesus. So the parable is about these children, right? They're playing in the marketplace. Mom and dad are shopping, and they're playing in the marketplace. And it's God's people who are the children playing, and they responded to John and Jesus like the ones in the parable. Uh, we played a fiddle, and you didn't sing and dance. 
We played a dirge and you forgot to mourn. So they're, they're enacting. Just imagine kids enacting a wedding scene, kids enacting funeral scenes. And so there were some of the kids who were running the show and then some who were supposed to put on the show. So the ones who are running the show are this generation, the people, and the ones who are supposed to put on the show are John and Jesus. I remember my dad telling me a story about his days in the country school. He went to a one-room country school up through sixth grade, and uh, on nice warm spring days, uh, some of the older kids would uh, look around, they'd be right in the middle of their lesson, and they'd yell, recess! And everybody would, who was of mind would pile out the windows. They'd just jump out the windows. They'd leave their desk and, and the windows would be open and they'd just pile out the windows. And then the teacher who would have to go out, run around and actually capture the kids and drag them back into the school. Okay? Imagine that chaos. I'm sure he learned a lot in country school. Uh, so anyhow, the, the point is that the people who didn't go out would be criticized by the people who called recess. You know, they, they were shamed by those who didn't do it. And so we here we have the, the children, this generation, the children of this generation, they called out to their playmates, the ESV says. Now the playmates are supposed to be like Jesus and John because Jesus and John are supposed to be the ones doing the acting. And they're not doing a good job of acting. And so they were criticizing them. And we see that in verse 17. We, we, we played the flute and you did not dance like you should at a wedding. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn like you would at a funeral. And so we see, I think, here that unbelief, the unbelief of the generation is often masked by criticism, by complaints. We have something to complain about that deters us, that keeps us and gives us an excuse for not believing. Well, you know, we went to that church, or we listened to that pastor, and the message was really just wasn't, didn't, didn't grip me. Well, you know, that, that ministry, they're not really focused on social justice like they should be. Or this uh, ministry direction, I'm not sure that discipling is really the, where it's at. The music, you know, I don't know about the music at that place. It's just really not gravitate uh, towards me. And, and no, the leadership of that church, they make decisions. I don't know why they make decisions. They never asked me about it. They just went ahead and did it. And so when our experience falls short of our expectation, uh, whether our expectation is legitimate or it's unrealistic, it is a seedbed for excusing our unbelief. Well, we just don't have to think about that. I just don't really want to believe that. It isn't really what I wanted. It's not what I wanted, so it can't be right. And this form of unbelief is further un understood with this next step in that impossible expectations are then explained because Jesus applied the parable to the treatment this generation gave he and John. Okay, in verses 18 and 19. Verse 18. For John came neither eating or drinking. Okay, which is true. And not that he never ate, that he never drank, but he ate what? Locusts and wild honey. Uh, and he didn't drink any wine. That's Luke 1.15, because he was a Nazarite. He had a Nazarite vow, so he didn't drink any wine. And he lived out in the wilderness, and he wore this camel hair coat and didn't have very much comfort. So he really was kind of a guy who, who then uh, came along and, and he preached repentance and judgment. And so he was, the, he was the guy that disappointed them. Because he lived, what were they doing? Playing 
a fiddle and wanting him to dance. And he was preaching repentance and judgment and wearing rough clothing. He was in funeral mode and they wanted a wedding. Okay, So the, the children were playing the, the wedding songs and he was living in funeral mode. Okay, Well, unfortunately, folks, many in the world, even those who go to church, are much like that generation then. They, they, they want the church to live in a wedding celebratory mode uh, in, in many ways. And I'm going to give you some, what I think are some examples. They, they want the church to celebrate the taking of unborn life. They want the church to magnify the uh, sexual perversion. And they want the church to redefine marriage in a way that's inclusive of everyone. They want the church of Jesus Christ to say that God is only love and He's all about love and that's all that He is and so you should be only loving. And they, they want the church to prioritize critical race theory and social justice and that's what the church should be about and celebrate these things. And when the church doesn't do that, expectation doesn't match experience and so we complain, criticize, and fail to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Turn from our sins and trust in Him. So the novelty and curiosity of going out to see John kind of wore off after he kept screaming at you, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn or you're going to be condemned in hell. The axe is already laid at the roots of the trees. Guess what? You're next. Uh, when you're stuck in your sin and you're arrogant and self-righteous, you really don't appreciate that for very long. And so they stopped and they rejected him. And they resented his call to repentance and his pointing out their sin and they rejected his self-righteousness. And so what did they say about him? Verse 18, he has a demon. Which according to Keener in his commentary would have been a, a capital offense could be killed because he, if he really did have a demon, that would, he, he could be taken out because of that. Uh, wasn't true. And so think about this. Who did Jesus say John was? Was he a prophet? No, he was more than a prophet. He was the prince of prophets. And they're saying, what about Jesus? He's a puppet of Satan. You have two diametrically opposed perspectives on who John the Baptist is. He has a demon. Well, Jesus was also criticized. Now catch the irony here. What were they condemning John for? We played the flute. I'm sorry, fiddle, I said. Flute. We played the flute, and you did not dance. Oh, so you're funeral mode dude. Okay. Now what do they say about Jesus? Verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Well, John came not eating and drinking, and that was bad. Now Jesus comes eating and drinking, Remember the wedding in Cana of Galilee? Jesus went to the wedding. He kind of liked hanging out at weddings, it seems like, you know. But it's kind of a theme throughout the Scriptures, right? The Scripture begins with the wedding. Jesus did his first miracle at a wedding. Guess where the Scripture ends? With a wedding. Yeah. And Jesus hung out at weddings. Jesus hung out in people's houses. He hung out in Matthew, the tax collector's house, Matthew chapter 9, we already studied that passage. He was in Matthew's house, and the Pharisees and scribes didn't like him hanging out with all these tax gatherers and sinners. Jesus was in Luke chapter 7. He was at Simon's house, and they didn't like him hanging out with all these people. I mean, Jesus was having a party, right? Hanging out with people, uh, rubbing shoulders with people. 
He was eating and drinking weddings. And he also taught forgiveness and the joy that the kingdom brought in through forgiveness, through trusting in him. Repent and believe, but then there's forgiveness. He was engaging the culture and teaching forgiveness, celebrating the kingdom. And he was living in, if you will, wedding mode. So they played the flute for John, hoping he'd dance, and he was in funeral mode. They played the dirge for Jesus, and he was living in wedding mode. So he was celebrating. So what did they say about Jesus? You know, well, they had something to say for him. See, the same people who despised what John was doing... detested Jesus for doing the opposite or the very same thing that they wanted John to do. It doesn't make sense. What they longed to see in John, they loathed when they saw it in Jesus. Impossible expectations. Which, which is it? And, and Jesus failed him in three ways. He said, behold, he's a gluttonous man and, and a drunkard. Now, these would have been disobedient to his parents, and according to Deuteronomy 21.20, I believe, uh, this also would have been a capital offense, as Keener points out in his commentary. And it was just not true. Jesus wasn't a drunkard, and he wasn't a gluttonous man, although he ate with people who, you know, whooped it up. But then they make this statement, he says, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners, which was true. But he was there... To convert them, not to be contaminated by them. Okay? His goal was conversion, not contamination. Now, tax gatherers and sinners, these are really nasty people in the Jewish religious people's eyes. Tax gatherers were despised because of their activity, overcharging people for their taxes to profit off of it, and because of their Gentile associations. Usually Jewish people, but they were employed by the Gentiles to take advantage of the Jewish people. And then there were sinners. Now these are the no, most notorious sinners. These are the murderers. These are the adulterers. These are the thieves that Jesus was hanging out with. To do that, for the Messiah to do that, was absolutely blew any category they had. Okay? It blew any category they had for the Messiah. And the Pharisees were quick to complain. If you, I'm not going to look there, but in Matthew chapter 9, verse 11, they, they condemned him for it. I remember... Early on in the, our ministry at the second church that Marla and I served at, uh, there was a gal in our church. Uh, who, she had lost her husband. Actually, her husband's funeral was the first funeral that I had uh, officiated at when I came there after about three months. And uh, so she invited Marla and I to go out to eat with her at the only place in town that served food for lunch. I think even served food, period. A local bar. We hadn't been in town long, small town. And we went, and then I waited, kind of held my breath afterwards. I mean, I kind of remember walking out of the bar after we had lunch, looking around to see if anybody saw me coming out. Fearing the judgment of the people who didn't care about our intention. Now, Irma, she didn't care. <laughs> she, she said, we're going to go out for lunch. This is the only place to eat lunch, so we're, gonna, we're down with that. Let's do it. You know, and I didn't really care either, but I was a little bit kind of thinking about it. These people were condemning Jesus for trying to reach out to the people. They didn't care about his motives. They just condemned him for what he'd done. 
their expectations had been shattered. And so what did they do? They believe? No. They turned away from him. Okay. So they condemned him. And the rebellion was evidenced by their, their, their impossible expectations. They derided what they derided in John, they demanded of Jesus. Remember? They derided, they, they detested the fact that John was, was in this funeral mode, but that's what they demanded of Jesus. Impossible expectations. And when their experience didn't match their expectations, they complained and they rejected. And you know what? The same thing happens today. We are living a generation when the expectation doesn't match, uh, their experience doesn't match their, match their expectation. They, they reject it. We live in a generation exposed, and I'm preaching to people who've been exposed to the truth of the Word of God. I know that. We hear the gospel. We hear the fact that Jesus says, we are wicked people from our core. That we deserve God's judgment, but in His love, He sent His Son as a babe in a manger to live and die on a cross to pay the debt for our sin, so that if we would turn from our sin and trust His death as a payment for our sin, His resurrection is proof of His victory over sin and death, that we would be delivered. And yet I wonder, how many reject it? We're content to complain. Rather than convert, we're content to reject rather than repent and trust Christ. Because, you know, it's a lot easier. And then we don't have to think about ourselves. That's the danger. You see, what we, we, we live in a generation that expects God to give me what I want and let me do what I want. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. You can't have it both ways. I am the Messiah. John was the prophet declaring me, the one proclaiming, prepare the way of the Lord. You either receive it or you reject it. I'm calling you to receive it because if you're, you live in your unbelief, you're damned to an eternity apart from God in hell. It's an impossible expectation. It's, it's, it's exposed there, but then it's explained. And finally, impossible expectations <clears throat> are empty. Look at the last part of verse 19. Very interesting statement. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So I, I take it to mean that the respective lifestyles and, and activities, the deeds of John and Jesus, reflect the right living of godly wisdom. What Jesus and John did, John in funeral mode, Jesus in wedding mode, what they did, their lifestyles, reflect the Godly wisdom, right living of godly wisdom. And in contrast, the ones who reject them evidence the corruption of human wisdom. They're condemning the people who are doing the right thing. So, you know, it's like this. Not everybody's called to be a John the Baptist, you know. But even Jesus' first words were repent and believe. So it's repent and believe, but there's grace and forgiveness. That's the message of the gospel. And we have to have both. God's wisdom is revealed through the deeds of God's people, if it's right. On Friday, the, uh, Brock Purdy led the Iowa State Cyclones to victory over Texas. His prowess was proven by his productivity on the field. Jesus and John, their evidence of their godly wisdom was proven through their actions. But Jesus didn't stop there. 
That's the first form of unbelief, impossible expectations. But then he talks and addresses another form of unbelief, which has to do with being impervious or indifferent to the evidence. That's verses 20 through 21. Jesus intensifies his condemnation of the unbelief by pointing out that the people to whom God came, particularly the Israelites, rejected evidence that was right in front of their face. Notice the text says in verse 20 that he began to reproach. The ESV says denounce. I mean, this is a strong correction. This is a rebuke uh, of the same form that uh, the, the Supreme Court recently handed down a decision uh, rebuking Governor Cuomo's restriction of religious gatherings to a certain number of people in New York. And so when the Supreme Court ruled, it was a rebuke of him for tromping on religious liberty. Jesus is renouncing, denouncing them. And what was he denouncing them for? Their lack of repentance. That's what it says in verse 20. I, I, I read the text. Because they did not repent. Because they did not repent. Because they did not make that 180 degree turn away from them, their self-directed and sinful rebellious life to trust in Jesus and follow him. Simple. You have the evidence in front of you, but you're ignoring it. I like what uh, Matthew Henry says at this point. He says, their faith did not prevail to the transforming of their hearts and the reforming of their lives. It did not prevail to the transforming of their hearts and the reforming of their lives. The absence of repentance in the presence of overwhelming evidence is a most heinous form of unbelief. Uh, it's a detestable form. It's either willful rebellion, so we're either proud in resisting, or it's at minimum, it's just plain indifference. I don't really care. I've got the evidence, so either I have the evidence and I don't give a rip, or I have the evidence and I got my mind made up, don't confuse me with the facts. Either way, it's not good. I said, I think it was last week, that the CISA, which is the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, no wonder they call them, they use all these abbreviations. CISA, cybersecurity, and they say security twice. So cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. For them to persist in their previous statement, which I quote, there is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised, to continue with that narrative is simply an ignoring of the evidence, okay? Simply ignoring the evidence. Regardless of how you feel about all that, it's just plain not. Ignore, it's ignoring them. So it's either rebellion or it's indifference. Whatever you say. For the offense that Jesus points to is aggravated by the amount of evidence that they had. They had been enlightened. The most enlightened. And this is what he says in the text. The, the, the most enlightened were the most entrenched against receiving the evidence. I'll read the text. Verse 20. Then he began to reproach the cities. Now get this. The cities in which most of his miracles had taken place. They had the most evidence. Those with the most evidence were the most entrenched against receiving and accepting the evidence. 
We're going to skip that uh, video clip, Adam, so we're not going to go there. But the, the problem is that they, they did not repent. And then Jesus gave a couple examples. Okay? He says, okay, I'm just going to illustrate. Who are, the, who are the cities in which most of the evidence came? Well, Chorazin and Bethsaida, verse 21. Woe to you. Woe. What's a woe? It's not riding horses here. This is a warning of danger that's coming because of your rebellion. In fascinating fashion, if you went to Isaiah chapters 13 through 23, I believe it would be, you would see woe to Egypt, woe to Assyria, woe to Moab, woe to woe to woe to woe to all the nations. Read the book of Amos, the first two chapters of the book of Amos. Woe to this city, woe to this city, woe to this city, woe to this city, and then he ends with Israel. It's a warning of impending judgment, impending doom. When I was growing up, it was woe to me if I ever disobeyed my father. It was woe. There was a warning there, and the warning meant consequences were coming if you dared to cross that line. Okay. And Jesus is saying woe. Now, uh, I, I think we have a map that we can show you where Chorus and Bethsaida. Basically, you, okay, Bethsaida is over there on your right-hand side. It says Bethsaida, Julius. Now, if you go to the left of that, you'll see Chorus, and it's not highlighted in yellow. But these are up near the Sea of Galilee. That's the north of the Sea of Galilee. So this is the upper, upper region of Galilee, okay? And they were places where Jesus did a lot of his miracles, You can look at it. I'll just give you Matthew 8. We're not going to look at it again, but Matthew 8, 22 and 23. He'd done some miracles there. John MacArthur puts it this way. The greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. The greater the, uh, the, greater the light, the greater the punishment for not receiving it. You have more evidence, you have more responsibility for the evidence that, that you've been given. That's what he says. The miracles and message of Jesus should have moved them. The end of verse 21. For if the miracles, <laughs> this is why there's punishment. For if the miracles that had been committed in you had been committed in Tyre and Sidon. The reason for the warning, if the miracles. And how offensive would it have been for Jesus to mention these two horrifically wicked cities as being more receptive or potentially more receptive to the miracles of Jesus than that of his own people. Tyre and Sidon were known for their immorality and for their idolatry. If they would have repented a long ago in sackcloth and ashes, he says. This is, I mean, grief and sorrow. Remember the king, the governor, the king of Nineveh, called the people to repent in sackcloth and ashes. In grief and sorrow. And they would have done this, he says. Despite the overwhelming privilege, people of Chorazin and Bethsaida were locked in their unbelief. Some of you know the name Franklin Graham. Right? Franklin Graham, son of Billy Graham, probably the world's greatest evangelist. For a good number of years, Franklin was entrenched in unbelief. In spite of all the evidence, godly father, godly mother, godly family, godly heritage, heard the gospel numerous times. I'm sure he had to sit and watch his dad on TV numerous times, even though his dad wasn't there. So he had all the evidence in the world, but he rejected it. He resisted it until God got a hold of him. And then God changed him. I would submit to you that America is awash in biblical truth. There's no place on earth where you have more access to God's word and God's teaching and 
podcasts and all sorts of information and songs and music and concerts and Christian artists. And yet, what, is it, what happens to it? So many remain unrepentant. Verse 22. Nevertheless, okay. So here's the result. There's this reprimand, woe. And the reason for the reprimand, if these cities would have had the miracles, they would have now the result. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment. The result of unbelief is uttered by divine authority. I say to you, the unbelieving pagans. Now, this is the, this is the thing. The unbelieving pagans of Tyre and Sidon will fare better than those who are privileged to have heard the gospel and seen the miracles of Jesus in Chorazin and Bethsaida at the final judgment. Now, don't get me wrong, all who fail to believe are going to spend an eternity apart from God. But this says, Jesus said, some are going to have it worse than others. Some are going to have it worse than others. So I say to us, to you listening, to me, listen up. Listen up. All you church-going, Bible-toting, Scripture-quoting, God-acknowledging, Sunday school-attending people who have heard the gospel and yet refuse to repent and turn. Woe to you. Because those who reject the truth are going to burn in hell. And Jesus doesn't want that. I don't want that. We don't want that. So repent and turn from your sins and accept Christ. And he goes on. That's not enough. Capernaum. Verse 23. And you, Capernaum. I like the way he sets him up. And you, Capernaum, you will not ascend to heaven, will you? And they're thinking, oh yeah, we will. This is where Jesus hung out. This is Jesus' home base. This is where Jesus had his house and every, or, you know, his family and everybody was there. This was where Jesus was doing all of his ministry from. Sure, we're going to be there. He goes, no, you're going to hell. I didn't say that. He said it. Look at verse 23. You shall be descend to Hades, to hell. That's the reprimand. You see, Jesus had... Done miracles there. Diseases were healed in Capernaum. Demons were cast out in Capernaum. The dead had been raised in Capernaum. We can read it. Matthew chapters 8 and 9. This is where this is all recorded. All that stuff had happened in Capernaum. And yet they persisted in their unbelief. And so he begins to introduce them to the result. And he says, and you Capernaum... You're not exalted to heaven, you're, you're going to hell. Why? For if, again, the same phraseology, for if, reveals the reason. Had the miracles that they witnessed in Capernaum been done in Sodom, no, Sodom is just code word for the absolute worst city on the planet ever, okay? Maybe next to Babylon, okay? Okay, those two are kind of by for first place, maybe I'm, Okay, but a really bad, really wicked city, okay? If, if, that, if those miracles had been occurred in Sodom, guess what? <clears throat> They'd still be here. 
Now, the story of Sodom was they were destroyed. And I just read it this morning in 2 Peter. They were destroyed, destroyed as an example to those who would live in unbelief after them. In other words, what happened to Sodom comes to all of you who failed to believe. What Jesus said here is, Capernaum, you're going to be worse off than Sodom. There is a proportionate there is a proportionate accountability based upon the amount of evidence that you've been given, that I've been given, resulting in different degrees of punishment. The more evidence, as MacArthur says, the more light, the greater the judgment for those who reject the light. That's what Jesus says. All unbelievers are condemned, but the religiously astute who reject the truth receive a greater punishment. You know, I mean, it kind of makes sense. We do that too, right? First offender criminals, their sentence is a little bit less than repeat offenders, right? You, you've been here before, you're going to get it worse. So my concern is that exposure to the truth that inoculates us against genuine conversion is dangerous. Exposure to the truth that inoculates you and me against turning from sin and trusting in Christ is dangerous. So I'm concerned about people who week after week after week or even in this country who hear the gospel and hear the truth. Oh, you know, you have country music stars. They're singing their songs because most of them started up in the church, you know, singing in the choir, all this stuff. And they sing about Jesus and they talk about Jesus and, you know, Jesus take the wheel and all this kind of stuff. And do we really believe that? We hear the truth. But it inoculates us against us as danger. Woe to those who claim to be God's people. Woe to those who grow up in the church, those who go to the Christian school, those who sing songs in the choir, those who go to Sunday school, those who grow up hearing and going to the concerts. Hey, I, I can't wait to go to the concert. Yeah, we can get in there and we'll have fun. And, and praise God, go, you know. Listen to our podcasts and listen to our favorite preachers and yet never are transformed. They're informed but not transformed because the Spirit of God has never opened their eyes to see the wickedness of their sin and they've never turned and trusted in Christ. And folks, if you don't repent of your sins, if we don't turn and accept Christ's death as the sacrifice that we deserve, we are headed to hell. And nobody that I know wants that for anybody. Jesus didn't want it. I think that's why he called them on this. He's giving them a chance to repent. And he's calling us who know Christ to proclaim this from the mountaintops. To take Christmas and make Christmas about Jesus. And about a Savior who came and died for us. Unbelief in the Messiah is never excused. We can't ignore God's message, God's messenger, and God's Messiah without paying the consequence. And so I would say to you, if you don't know Christ, admit that you are a person who lives in rebellion against God. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that, admit that you're, a, you know, we're all either ignoring God or, you know, being indifferent to him. And just acknowledge that. Confess it and repent. Believe that Jesus paid the debt that you deserve to pay and that you would confess Christ as Lord and Master of your life and live your life and surrender to Him. And then you will have forgiveness and you will be delivered from 
eternal punishment. That's what Jesus is calling them to repent. Turn from your sin. And believers, for us, what do we do with this text? I think we just say, wow. First of all, okay, am I, am I being transformed or just informed? And if I'm a child of God, will I take this message and share it with a lost and dying world? At Christmas, that's what Christmas is about. It's about the greatest gift given to us so that we might give the gift to other people. You know, this generation that Jesus talked about, they had ample evidence for the truthfulness, the words and the works of John and Jesus, evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Our generation, what did, John, what did Jesus say about us? He was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because of our understanding of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus that makes it possible for people to come to faith in Christ. We are more fully informed than John ever was. We have a better, a more for, informed message than John ever did. And now when we, we take a piece of bread and we take the cup and we break it, we remember through these symbols what God has done for us in Christ. And we should be joyful and appreciative and humbled. And then we should be inspired that we could share this message with other people so they too can have life and have it abundantly, an eternal life that begins now and lasts for eternity so that in the midst of the chaos of all that's around us, we can still have hope that God is in control. So as we, as we take the cup and the bread, I just I, before you do, just take some time to thank God. Take some time to reflect. If you don't know Christ, take time to surrender your life and submit to God and, and, and cry out and say, Lord, I need you. I trust you. And then take it with joy and then pray with me that, God, we would be better witnesses for you of this great truth. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word. It's a hard word, Father. Unbelief ends in condemnation. And I pray, I thank you that, uh, that I've been delivered, that everyone who's trusting in Christ has too, not by our own devices, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. Not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. I pray that you would help us to give you praise for what you've done and help us to proclaim it to a lost and dying world. We pray in Jesus' name. 